Solomon's act of building a temple was more than a moment in history. It was an act that Jews continued to do for centuries, rebuilding the temple in their memories, generation after generation, a reminder of the bond between Israel and God, providing thereby a sustaining love in the face of loss and exile. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 103, The Temple and Us. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In an issue of the Torah Umada Journal, an article appeared by J. Schachter, not to be confused with Rabbi J.J. Schachter. The article noted that for those standing on the outside of traditional Judaism looking in, the rituals that are involved in mourning for the temple in Jerusalem, for an edifice long gone, can easily appear very strange. As an example, Schachter offers tikkun chatzot, or midnight mourning something practiced for centuries by generations of mystically-minded Jews, not only on the 9th of Av, when the temple was originally destroyed, but throughout the year. The ritual involves rising up in the middle of the night to mourn for the destruction of two temples in Jerusalem. Schachter constructs in the article a hypothetical case study, imagining an elderly, observant Jew engaging in this ritual act of mourning suddenly being discovered by his assimilated American grandchildren, who assume that something has gone profoundly wrong with their grandfather's mind. Schachter further gives us what sort of case study a modern secular psychologist might compose in diagnosing this mourner for Jerusalem. Here are a few selections from the case study, which makes up the entire article. Quote, The patient's grandchildren presented the author with a description of a unique and bizarre pattern of insomnia. According to the grandchildren's report, the patient would arise most nights at approximately midnight. The patient would then go to his fireplace, pick up some ashes, and put them on his forehead. Then he would sprawl underneath the doorway with his face on the floor, muttering unintelligibly. The grandchildren reported that they had confronted the patient about this behavior and that they had received the explanation that their grandfather was mourning for the temple. It was at this point that the author received the initial contact. End quote. The psychologist in the hypothetical case study also adds that, quote, the patient obsessed over the loss of his temple, and he constantly hoped to get it back. In fact, it would not be an exaggeration to say that for this patient, hoping to get back his temple was a major reason for living. This temple had been briefly lost once before, restored, and then lost again. On several occasions, the patient's grandchildren told the patient in no uncertain terms that it was time for him to accept the loss of his temple and move on. It was, after all, over 1,900 years. The temple was never going to be restored. End quote. However, the psychologist continues in this imagined case study, quote, the patient, on the contrary, seemed to accept all his compulsions as completely natural, denied any distress over the control which they had assumed over his life, and was sincerely amazed that anyone would think 1,900 years too long a time to wait for the restoration of the temple. End quote. Many traditional Jews do not observe daily midnight mourning today, yet all engage in somewhat similar activities on the 9th of Av when Jews as a people mourn for the temple. And to the uninitiated, the ritual may appear equally strange. Why mourn for a building that was destroyed almost 2,000 years ago? 
The answer, as I argued in my Tikva Sacred Time series, is linked to the Jewish meaning of memory. But it is also, as we will discuss today, what the temple itself embodied from the moment that Solomon built it in Jerusalem so many thousands of years ago. As we saw yesterday, Solomon reaches out to the ally of his father, David, Hiram, king of Tyre in Phoenicia. Solomon informs Hiram that he plans to fulfill his father David's dream of creating a temple and that he seeks the help of Tyre in accomplishing this task. Hiram responds enthusiastically, a sign of the universalistic aspects of the temple, which we will discuss tomorrow. But there is another aspect to the tale of the building of this edifice that is interesting. Hiram sends Solomon, one of his most skilled craftsmen, whose name, according to the Book of Kings, is also Hiram, chapter 7, verse 13. And King Solomon sent and fetched Hiram from Tyre. He was a widow's son of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in brass. And he was filled with wisdom and understanding and cunning to work all works in brass. And he came to King Solomon and wrought all his work. The biographical details about this craftsman seem, at first glance, to conflict a bit with those provided elsewhere in the book of Chronicles. And we will attempt to resolve this when we study that later book. But what is clear is that this man who helped Solomon create everything in the temple was someone with Israelite lineage, but one who was also very much a part of Tyre, with a name akin to the king of Tyre. So think about this, one of the most memorable moments in the history of the Jewish people, when the temple was created and the presence of the Almighty made so profoundly manifest, was the joint effort of Solomon, the most powerful Israelite in the land, and Hiram, an Israelite craftsman from outside of Israel. The temple was the vision and crowning glory of the Davidic dynasty, but it was executed, crafted, and created by a seemingly insignificant Israelite living outside the land of Israel whom no one had known or heard of in Israel because of his dwelling in Tyre. The Mikdash, or Temple of Solomon, thus represents the diverse contributions of the Jewish people coming together in unity. If, as we argued last week, the altar built by David in Jerusalem joins the tribal territories of Judah and Benjamin, recreating the great unity achieved by brothers at the end of the Joseph story, then the brotherhood of the Jewish people is captured as well in the story of Solomon the king and Hiram the craftsman. But it is not only the unity of Israel that is represented by the temple, but also the relationship between Israel and God. The layout of the temple paralleled that of the tabernacle. There was an outer area for sacrifices, an inner hechal, a more sacred area where one found the menorah, the altar of incense, and the table of the showbread. And further in, was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant rested. But while the general blueprint was the same, everything in the temple was set out in a more extraordinary and permanent way. The temple was not a traveling tent, but a building. And what a building! Chapter 6, verse 21. So Solomon overlaid the house within with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across before the sanctuary, and he overlaid it with gold, and the whole house he overlaid with gold, until he had finished all the house and the whole altar that was by the sanctuary he overlaid with gold. Solomon also adds aspects that were not in the tabernacle. For example, the inner sanctum had not one but many menorahs and showbread tables. And in the Holy of Holies, Solomon created two enormous cherubs 
as a parallel to those smaller cherubs atop the ark. Verse 23. And within the sanctuary he made two cherubs of olive wood, each ten cubits high, and five cubits was the one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the other wing of the cherub. From the uttermost part of the one wing to the uttermost part of the other were ten cubits. A cubit, for those of you who for some reason use the metric or American-slash-imperial system of measurement in your regular lives instead of the biblical measurement system, is, let's say, around a foot and a half. This means that unlike the small cherubs atop the ark, these, which were also in the Holy of Holies, were around 15 feet tall. This addition, as Rabbi Alex Israel notes, is meant to embody the permanence of this place, the Temple Mount, as the eternal dwelling place of the divine. No longer will the ark travel. And if, as we have previously argued in our discussion of the tabernacle, the cherubs of the ark facing each other are meant to embody the love between Israel and the Almighty, a covenantal marital bond, then the new cherubs inform us that it will now forever be the Temple Mount in which that love is expressed and felt. Of course, as we will see throughout much of the rest of this biblical book, Israel will violate its covenantal obligations to God in the years to come. But at the same time, it will be the Temple Mount and the Temple that stood there that will continue to embody the deep connection between Israel and God, even after the Temple is destroyed throughout the many generations of Jewish memory. This poignant point was made by Norman Lamb in a sermon before the 9th of Av, discussing two enigmatic rabbinic statements. First, that the Messiah was himself born on the day that the temple was destroyed. And second, that when the Babylonians entered the Holy of Holies to destroy the first temple, they found the two cherubs miraculously embracing each other as a sign of love between the Almighty and Israel. This latter teaching is particularly strange because the first temple was destroyed due to God's wrath at Israel's sins. Why then would the cherubs embody at that very moment the love between God and his people? Rabbi Lamb said as follows, quote, The attachment between two people is always strongest just before they part from each other. Two friends may continue their friendship with each other on an even keel for many years. Their loyalty requires of them no outward expression, even if they do not take each other for granted. Then one of the two prepares to leave on a long, long journey. How poignant does their friendship suddenly become? With what longing do they view each other? Similarly, husband and wife are involved in the daily struggles and trivialities that cloud their true feelings for each other. But when one is about to leave for a protracted vacation or sick leave or business trip, and they know they will not be near and with each other for a painfully long period, then they suddenly rise to the very heights of mutual love and dedication, and they behold each other with new warmth and yearning and sweet sorrow. End quote. So said Rabbi Lamb. And Rabbi Lamb added that this is what occurred at the moment of the destruction of the temple. The cherubs in this rabbinic teaching truly captured the love that would last between God and Israel, a love and longing for Jerusalem and the temple that would lie at the heart of Jewish identity. To say the Messiah was born in that moment is to say that the Jewish link of love to the temple is the source of Israel's endurance and that it will lead, therefore, ultimately to Israel's ultimate redemption. Rabbi Lamb put it this way, quote, The love between God and Israel follows the same pattern as genuine human love. Tisha B'Av was the beginning of the Hester Panim, the parting of the lovers. God and Israel turned away from each other, and the great, exciting, and immensely complicated relationship between the two companions begun in the days of Abraham was coming to an end. 
But before this tragic and heartbreaking moment, there took place a last long lingering look, the fervent embrace of the two lovers as they were about to part. At the threshold of separation, they both experienced a great outpouring of mutual love, an intense ahava, as they suddenly realized the long absence from each other that lay ahead of them. In so brief a time, they tried to crowd all the affection, the opportunities for which they ignored in the past, and all the love which would remain unrequited in the course of the future absence. That is why the cherubim were facing each other. Certainly the Israelites were rebellious and in contempt of the will of God, but they were facing each other. God and Israel looked towards each other longingly and in lingering affection before they were pulled apart. And from this high spiritual union of God and Israel was created the soul of the Messiah. Mashiach was conceived in intense and rapturous love. End quote. And what this means is that Solomon's act of building a temple was more than a moment in history. It was an act that Jews continued to do for centuries, rebuilding the temple in their memories, generation after generation, a reminder of the bond between Israel and God, providing thereby a sustaining love in the face of loss and exile. Right outside the Israel Museum is the scale model of Second Temple-era Jerusalem, which was once at the Holy Land Hotel and then brought to the museum in 2006. I always loved this model, but I didn't know its story until I read online about it in a book put out by the Israel Museum. And I draw on this source and others in briefly summarizing the story. It was the conception of Hans Kroch, a Jewish developer who lived in Germany during the war. Kroch's wife was murdered by the Nazis, but his children managed to escape. Then, in 1948, loss followed loss. His son, defending Nitzanim in the Negev, died in Israel's War of Independence. Kroch, the owner of the Holy Land Hotel, wanted to honor his son's memory, and so he approached the archaeologist Michael Aviona and suggested that, because the old city had been lost to the Jewish people, he could remind the Jewish people, in memory of his son's sacrifice, the glory of Jerusalem that once was. This embodies how the romance between our people and Jerusalem, the romance between our people and the temple, the romance between our people and God, preserves us and sustains us. A husband loses his wife at Ravensbrook. A father loses a son in the birth of the Jewish state. And yet, rather than reject Jewish history, he seeks to sustain it, remember it, cherish it. Ladies and gentlemen, how can we do otherwise? The Book of Kings will take us through many stories, but as the text takes us, from the temple to other locations in Israel. We all owe it to the loyalty of Jewish generations to keep the temple of Jerusalem built in our hearts. This is Mayor Soloveitchik looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.